Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Jim Howell. Longtime listeners of the podcast will definitely remember my first interview with Jim. He's a rancher and CEO of Grasslands LLC, a progressive ranch management company with operations in the American West, Florida, and New Zealand. Jim was also a co-founder of the Savory Institute, a nonprofit organization that espouses the use of holistic planned grazing to restore healthy grasslands around the world. Having worked so close to the land for his entire career, Jim has a fascinating personal and professional backstory, so I encourage you to listen to our first episode if you haven't already. Knowing that many of you listeners either work in ranching or are interested in holistic ranch management, Jim and I decided to have a second conversation focused on more of the nitty-gritty details of his process for managing ranches. We discuss a wide range of topics, from how Jim and his investors identify ranches as potential acquisitions, to their methods for increasing stocking rates while simultaneously improving the health of the grass. We discuss the intense planning that goes into each operation, and Jim explains how his grazing process translates into increased biodiversity and improved ecological health of the entire landscape. This conversation is like a college class in ranch management, only much, much, much more fun and engaging. Our conversation revolves around two of Grassland's eastern Montana ranches, the 53,000-acre Antelope Springs Ranch and the 38,000-acre Cinchbuckle Ranch. My Murr Ranch Group colleague Duffy Brown and I are working with Jim to market both of these ranches, so we're both familiar with the operations and landscapes and understand the amazing results that Jim has been able to achieve. Both ranches serve as excellent case studies of how holistic management can bolster the health of grass, increase profitability, and be a true winning proposition for the land, animals, and all other stakeholders. Even if you don't have a specific interest in ranches or grasslands, you'll still get a lot out of this episode. Jim has very wise answers to some of the quick questions that I didn't get to ask him during our first interview, and he offers plenty of great book recommendations, including one book that Jim thinks every college freshman should read. The episode is packed with great information, so don't forget to check the episode notes. Jim is a hardworking, curious, humble, and smart guy who's managed to create a fulfilling career that's making the world a better place, so I know you'll enjoy this conversation. As you know, the way that I've started these interviews is I ask people, when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Mm -hmm. But we've got an hour and a half that people can go back to um, with you and and listen to that in detail. But what I would like is for you to just kind of get, for people who haven't listened to that episode, if you could give an overview of kind of what you do and, and your background. Yep. Well, right now I, I lead a company called Grasslands LLC, which is a ranch management company that we founded in uh, 2010 with a handful of partners. Um, it was conceived to go out and raise investor capital to, uh, to then go out and try to find commercially viable ranches um, that we would try to manage for our investors, uh, both uh, to try to generate a competitive annual dividend on the, on the value of that capital, but also these guys were highly motivated just by the long-term capital storage potential of these properties. And so, so we found some like-minded investors and, and, and got that done. And, and, uh, 
And so I lead that company now, and we have, we'll talk about the operations here throughout the podcast. But um, prior to that, I was a rancher in western Colorado and did a lot of ranch management consulting around the west. Um, prior to that, my wife and I got married in 90, 1994, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, we managed our first job with co-managing a ranch in southwestern New Mexico in the Chihuahua Desert. And that's kind of where we got to know each other. Okay. And, uh, and my wife's from Argentina. We met in New Zealand and had a long-distance relationship. So when I say we got to know each other, that's, we really didn't know each other before we got married. <laughs> Eventually talked her into marrying me, and our first job was getting stuck in the middle of the desert together. And, figured out and real figured, quick. Oh, man. It was great, though. And uh, prior to that, I managed a grass-based dairy in East Texas that I did. Um, I got that job because I'd spent that year in New Zealand okay. uh, as, an, as an exchange student, learning how the dairy... Uh, industry works grass-based dairy industry works in new zealand and and so that farm in texas was modeled after the way the kiwis farm their dairy cows and i had no idea what i was doing but since i had a year in new zealand they thought i did so that's why i got the job (laughs) prior to that i i cowboyed in western colorado for a summer my first job out of college and and so that's that's kind of my career going backwards and uh so could you talk a little bit about the Savory Institute as well? Because I know that's a that's a, a name and a, almost a brand that people know of mm-hmm. when they think of uh, holistic management. Can you just talk a little bit a, a little bit about your involvement with that and how that how Savory and Grasslands work together? Yeah. So yeah, my my wife and I, Daniela, we we that that ranch we managed in Mexico was actually um, owned by an absentee owner from Tennessee, and he hired Savory's group at the time uh, that was called the Center for Holistic Resource Management in the mid '90s uh, to manage the ranch, and then we got hired as the onsite managers. So through that job is how we got to know Alan Savory okay. and got kind of our teeth cut on all this extensive scale uh, planned grazing. Um, uh, range management in semi-arid environments. And uh, so we got to know Alan. We did a lot of work with him through the years. Never really worked explicitly or, or specifically for his group, which is based in Albuquerque. Um, but did a lot of consulting kind of contracts with them, a lot of training around the world for them. Stayed in touch through the years. And then in 2009, we decided to create a kind of a for-profit um, uh, parallel entity to the Albuquerque-based entity, which we decided to call the Savory Institute. It was all meant to be for-profit at that point, mm-hmm. built around um, training and consulting and coaching around the world, but also this ranch investment grasslands project was a, the main part of that. And uh, But once we got into that, we realized, shoot, a lot of the stuff that we want to do at the end of the day really is kind of cause-related, mm-hmm. um, kind of improving the world, improving the quality of life of pastoralists around the world, a lot of which isn't very profit mm-hmm. doesn't have a whole lot of profit potential in it so and plus we had we had high net worth individuals including our investors in our first properties that were wanting to give us money to do all that work sure. um, and but they couldn't donate money to us unless we had a, a nonprofit set up so we decided to split it and create another nonprofit that became that we kept as the Savory Institute and then the for profit profit side of it stayed in grasslands in the form of grasslands Okay. So, so we're all the same people. Um, just some of us are focused on the Savory Institute side, and some on the Grassland side. Yep. And so, for people who want to really understand the methods you guys use, um, kind of an overview, I suggest they go listen to the first podcast because you you go into great detail on that, and then we're going to mm-hmm. go into detail now mm-hmm. um, because the way I initially learned about you was your book for the love of land, which I just I absolutely love, and I recommend to people. 
and hopefully I've created a few sales for you through the podcast. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and you hadn't seen a huge bump. It hasn't been huge, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> I expect you to be a, reti- a retired author now. Um, but um, the, the, the second half of that book is case studies from different properties you've worked on or been involved with. Mm-hmm. And so I thought what would be cool in this podcast is to kind of do an audio book version of the two properties that we're working on together right now up in Montana. Mm-hmm. And so if you could just talk a little bit about those two ranches, just kind of give an overview of each one, um, and, and then we'll talk in detail about what you've done on those properties. Yeah, so the Northern Great Plains is where we got started with our grasslands investments. We actually got started in western South Dakota in Butte County in uh, 2010. We got the first two properties bought there. And then 2011, we got the Cinchbuckle bought, which is eastern Montana, 2012. Then we bought Antelope Springs. And so um, the reason that we were driven to focus on that geography was uh, there's a lot a lot of background on that but part part of it is that was kind of the last uh, what we perceived to be the last undervalued pocket of ranch real estate in the u.s um when we started grasslands we were looking simultaneously there and new zealand but our first investors decided that they would like to get to know us in the context of the united states before we tried to do anything internationally and so when I went to pitch them, I, most of my first pitch was about a New Zealand opportunity that I was aware of. And then I said, oh, and by the way, in case you want to do something in the U.S., here's some stuff in South Dakota we found that looks like it'll pencil about the same as the New Zealand stuff. And uh, they said, that was on Friday and Monday, they called me and said, we want to do this stuff in South Dakota with you guys. Let's try to make that happen. And so... Um, so it wasn't just the fact, though, that it was undervalued relative to, and when I say undervalued, we, we look at it on a, on a dollars invested. And the dollars invested in the land that it takes to run one cow unit for a year. So, mm-hmm. so um, you know, we, it's, so that's a function of the price per acre and how many acres it takes to run a cow mm-hmm. and, uh, for a year. And so the combination of that resulted in the best valued land on a dollars invested per cow unit basis in the, in the country. But that wasn't the only thing either. The, I, I kind of gleaned these insights as a result of um, working around the world, traveling around the world a lot. My wife and I had this tour business and we ranch tour business that we took progressive ranchers to visit other progressive ranchers around the world. And I started piecing together that there's some uh, kind of traits of really successful ranches that that are kind of were common across different geographies and different countries. And you know, it's not rocket science, but kind of the main thing is they need to have scale. Um, so, you, you know, for a commercial ranch to be viable, it kind of needs to have uh, at least a thousand year-round cow unit carrying capacity mm-hmm. because your basic uh, kind of infrastructure that you need or kind of human resource base and basic tools are the same for a 500-cow ranch as they are a 1,000-cow ranch or even a 1,500, 2,000-cow ranch pretty much. So um, you need two guys. And you, you need two, two good men or women, mm-hmm. and you need a few horses, and you need a pickup, and you need a couple four-wheelers, and you need a stock trailer. And, uh, and that's the case if you're running 500 cows or 2,000 cows. Mm-hmm. And so the more, the more stock units, animal units, you can spread those basic overheads over, the better. So, so the Northern Great Plains still has these big, contiguous, intact ranches where you can run big herds of big, big um, herds of livestock in a really labor efficient way. So there's the scale component exists in the Northern Great Plains. 
The other is it's it's reasonably flat, mm-hmm. um, flat to rolling, which makes life way easier than steep mountain country. Sure. You just spend a lot of time fighting gravity if you're in the mountains, yeah. um, which is tough on people, tough on horses, tough on pickups, tough on pumps. Yeah. Um, you know, road maintenance is, is awful. And mm-hmm. so I love the mountains, but it's tough. It's way tougher to ranch in mountains than it is in the plains. Yeah. And, um, and so you can just create those low-cost production models a lot simpler on the plains. The other thing is that northern Great Plains are dominated by cool-season grasses, cool-season perennial grasses, which tend to um, retain a better ratio of protein, digestible protein to digestible energy, especially mm-hmm. going into the dormant season in the winter. So um, with a little bit of protein supplement, you can graze all winter on that stuff mm-hmm. and maintain adequate levels of animal performance on, on dry cows. And then, and then being in that type of environment, the weather patterns that are typical in the northern half of the country versus the southern half like the southern plains are mostly built around or the the mostly the warm season grasses which don't have nearly the digestible protein in the winter when the grasses are dormant and the rain tends to come far more erratically and sporadically and and in more spotty pattern mm-hmm. whereas in the northern great plains you you get typically enough snowfall in the winter usually snows a little bit melts in the ground snows a little bit melts in the ground and so you have usually a saturated soil profile when it starts to warm up. And then the rainy season is right in April, May, and June, typically, right when you need it. And so, and there are usually these big, broad weather fronts that come through mm-hmm. instead of these spotty thunderstorms like in the southern plains. And so the, the point is the, the predictability of growth up there is far higher than it is in the southern tiered states. When you were kind of discovering that, did you discover this because you had spent time up there on ranches? Or, or was there some database or, or some research some way you research this to, to figure this out um no i you know i definitely databases but you know i the the thing is the northern great plains kind of combine the um the good of the mountains uh in terms of the predictability of growth in the spring yeah with the good of the plains when they're, they're, they're flat. So sure. a lot of the grasses that we have up there in, in Montana and South Dakota are the same grasses that grow, grow on my family's ranch or former ranch in western Colorado, uh-huh. western wheatgrass and different needle grasses and different kinds of blue grasses. Um, so those are, they're the same grasses. And, they, and the reason that it's so predictable in the Intermountain West is because we get all the snow, the soil, soil profile saturated in the spring. Yep. And, uh, and you, know you're, you know you're always going to grow grass. Sometimes, you know, how much you grow is dependent on how much kind of spring moisture you get. But you know you're always going to get spring green up, which is not the case like where Danielle and I were at in New Mexico. Sure. Where, you know, you could have a total failure in one year if the rain didn't hit you. Uh-huh. And that's the same way all across the southwest and across the southern plains. So, so I don't know. Just I, I just picked that up. I knew that I just I knew the southern I knew the northern plains had that rainy season right in the spring, right, right when you need to get the rain. And yeah. So, so the cool season grasses, the predictable spring green up, the flat nature of the country, the fact that there's a lot of surface water up there, mm-hmm. um, not, not so much live creeks, although there are some live creeks, but people have developed reservoirs up there all over the place. Yep. And, so, and so they tend to fill up because you get these blizzards in the winter that blow the snow off the ridges so you can graze the ridges, but they fill the coolies up with snowdrifts, and then those snowdrifts melt out in the spring and fill all your ponds up. And when we're talking about a lot of reservoirs, I mean, I think one of these ranches, there's like 90-some reservoirs. Yeah, I mean, a lot range. of them are just little, you know, little yeah. dugout ponds. And sure. some of them are like, you know, have a surface area of 40 or 50 acres. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's lots of those. There's also, it tends to be good groundwater up there. And mm-hmm. so to the extent you do need to spread your water around and add to the 
to the reservoir capacity because in dry years, those, a lot of them aren't don't have water. Um, uh, you need to have good water, groundwater, not only groundwater that's accessible, in other words, it's not extremely deep, but um, it's also the quality that you need to yep. maintain good animal performance. So it doesn't have a whole lot of, content, you know, dissolved solids and sulfates and stuff in it. You need to have high quality water. So that's that tends to be the case up there too, for the most part. The other thing is that um, a lot of that country is kind of right in the marginal wheat belt area. Uh-huh. Kind of, it's it's right where the kind of the good wheat country and mid, you know, kind of the hundredth meridian and mid sure. mid North and South Dakota. The further west you go, the more marginal it gets. By the time you get into western South Dakota, eastern Montana, there's still patches of ground that are dryland farmed. Um, but anywhere where you can actually grow a wheat crop, mm-hmm. you can also actually grow really good perennial native grass, yeah. and. Uh, and so, so it's productive country. Just it tends to be reasonably productive grass country. You know, it's short grass prairie, but because you can actually grow wheat there, especially in the better soil types, that that just shows you the. It, it's indicative of the soil fertility and the and the and predictable patterns of precipitation. Plus, in stuff that's been historically wheat farmed, there tends to be good infrastructure. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so good roads. You know. Th- pretty good commercial centers where you can get all your needs met in terms of equipment and fuel and and all that sure to necessary to run around so all those things kind of conspired to make me realize that this is where we need to really focus our energy relative to you know there's lots of places where you can run viable ranches but it's just the 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 headaches and the the challenge associated with it is is it's just much greater sure and um so, I mean, we looked at a lot of public lands ranches also. Once we kind of got going there in Montana, everybody else kind of discovered that country too within a few years when we got there. And we and our investors kind of got spoiled on the price points that we got into those places on. And yep. so they were reluctant to expand. So that's when we started looking at other geographies. And so that took us back to New Zealand and we ended up going to Florida. But we looked at a lot of country in Nevada and Arizona as well, public lands places for the most part. And they all like penciled good, but you get out there and you do the tour and, uh-huh. and, and start to understand the logistics of what it takes to run this place. And, and it's like, oh, man, I want to go back to South Dakota. Yeah, <laughs> those, yeah. those relatively, you know, smaller, they're not small, but relatively small compared to, you know, half a million acre place in Nevada. Sure. Um, and just a lot easier to get your head around. But, you know, these, they are small in that range, but they're, they're anything but small. I mean, they're they're massive pieces of land, which is just kind of gives you a scale of uh, a sense of scale in eastern Montana. Mm-hmm. I remember there was some quote by Theodore Roosevelt talking about being in eastern Montana is like being uh, in the middle of the the ocean, yeah. just completely lo- you know kind of wide open, lonely feeling. And it's it's a neat area, like nowhere I've ever been, eastern Montana. Yeah, no, I love it up there. I, I think it's I think it's fascinating country. Um, and our ranches up there, for the most part, have done well. Um, we'll talk about that more, I know, as we go through all your, your questions there on specifics that we've achieved there. But but it's it's just a just fascinating country. And, you know, we're just now figuring out, I think, how to really live in that landscape. Uh-huh. Um, you know, since white man's been there, it's been a series of one disaster after another, yeah. really, starting with... You know, that Cattle Kingdom book that you recommend, I've recently gotten through that. That just gave me a lot more insight on how that all actually played out up there with those initial, you know, English and Scottish and Irish investors and not knowing what the heck they were doing. At the end of the day, it was like a 
uh, an outpost of the British Empire. Yeah, I didn't realize <laughs> any of that. I didn't know any of that stuff yeah. until I read that book. I thought, did you like that book? Oh, yeah, I thought, I thought, it, was, it, was great. I thought it was excellent. And, um, uh, but yeah, I kind of was, I, I was aware of that, but I certainly didn't know the detail. And, and so that book was great in that sense. But it, it was, it was just, it kind of reminded me of, of kind of our Crosslands project in some regards, only a much smaller scale, what we're doing. But, you know, these kind of, these investors coming in mm-hmm. that have certain expectations and the guys that are managing for them under huge pressure to deliver. Mm-hmm. And, but those guys that came in, the managers didn't at the end of the day, know what the heck they were doing. No they, they were, they were bringing their, you know, their, you know, they had, they had no idea what kind of climatic extremes that they could experience mm-hmm. there. And they had a few good years to get going that made them way too cocky. First of all, they were inheriting this incredible ecological capital that they didn't understand how to manage. Yep. And then they had a few good wet years and, and not bad winters in a row. Um, and that gave them a level of optimism that was not well-founded. And they continued to increase stocking rate to the point that they were overstocked up there. And then that winter of 1886-87 hit and everything died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa. That's the thing. You know, people back to Theodore Roosevelt, they, they he's credited as being a rancher or a cattleman. But I'd say that's... He's he's had a few failures, and that's probably his most extreme failure. And it, yeah. people don't play that up, but he, I mean he, he lost his inheritance. Yeah, I know, on man. That. He got his butt kicked on that, and that's why he wrote so many books because he needed to earn money. Yeah, I know. I that's another book of yours that I read was The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt this year. Yeah, did so you? I, 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 you know, learned all that about him, and yeah, the guy was became broke. Yeah, <laughs> he had to write these books. He to, was just cranking out books. Everybody yeah. said well, he wrote forty books. I mean, yeah, because he had a yeah, mansion out of to necessity. Maintain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He had this mansion that he had to maintain back there, back east, as summer manor. And uh, anyway, but so, it, so yeah, it was. So you know now you know and then the, the so that all fell over mm-hmm. and then the homesteaders came in in totally false pretenses. You need to read Badland. I next. did. I just you finished did? that finished one it? too. Yeah, that was I. Oh no, kidding. And, uh, you know, and so what we're kind of left with there is the, it's kind of the remnants of that homestead era. Uh-huh. The guys, you know, a handful of families survived and aggregated these homesteads together and kind of created halfway viable ranches, mm-hmm. but still didn't really know what they were doing in that landscape. They definitely had learned and understood, well, we can't, we can't plow it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't overstock it. Um, uh, but the, uh, there still is not a great awareness of how those livestock need to interact with the landscape, which is we talked a lot about on my, the first podcast. But there's a growing awareness, but the actual ability to pull it off and, and, and actually execute so that your cattle are mimicking the original migratory grazing patterns of the bison that would have been there. Um, there's still a lot that we're learning on that. And so we've learned a lot about that just, just in the process of us being up there. I mean, we, to an extent, came in there um, – not as definitely not nearly as naive as those guys that came in there in the 1860s, but coming in thinking that I've been talking about these predictable weather patterns, mm-hmm. and yeah, they are they're good most years, but then you get your then you get your butt kicked sure. like we did last year um, with the driest year that's been recorded since weather stations have been kept in eastern Montana. They have 1.8 inches of rain between January and the middle of September. That is insane. Yeah, it was it was insane, and. Uh, it was it was really tough to get through that, but at the same time, we also learned how resilient that landscape really is, and how resistant it really is to those to those huge dips in in, uh, in precipitation. Because it's amazing how those plants still, even with very minimal moisture, can still you know 
do 50% of what they can do in a good year in the worst year ever. Yeah. You still have to, you have to destock and, 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 uh, and, and adjust everything accordingly. But even in the worst year ever, it wasn't a failure up there. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's, that's been good. Um, but we were optimistic in terms of what we, that country can do. And we really pushed things on our South Dakota places, mm-hmm. um, the first places we got. And, uh, we ended up when the, we just sold those actually the, uh, actually the second one is due to close here in a few days. Oh, nice. Um, but, uh, you know, we came in on those places. First of all, they tend to be serious. All that country tends to be understocked relative to how much grass can actually grow. Mm-hmm. And we talk more about how we actually access that grass, but we went into those South Dakota places thinking, man, doubling the local average stocking rate, doubling what these local guys think they can carry here is going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And we ended up doing that. We our, our average stocking rate has been 98% of the 98% above, so almost double what um, the historic average is of that area. But we have we have um, we've got these biological or ecological monitoring transects and sites all over those places. Mm-hmm. So we, we go out there every year and measure in the fall how different ecological indicators are faring yeah. or trending through time. And um, all of our plants, plant density is still the same in terms of basal cover. Um, we, haven't, we haven't lost plants there, yeah. but our, our litter cover in between plants, which is a, a component of our aggregate soil cover, which we like to have at 90% plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so 10% bare ground, 90% plus uh, soil cover has, has come back significantly um because we've just pushed stocking rate too hard so every year you got to grow enough grass to both feed the cattle and leave enough residual to cover the soil surface sure and we've we've done we've been incredibly efficient at harvesting our grass there at the expense of litter cover but not at the expense of losing plants and so we just need to we realize that we need to back off our stocking rate there and in this, at the Cinch Buck on Antelope Springs in eastern Montana, we, we indeed have been more conservative there. And our average stocking rates there have been about 50% above the long-term average of the area. Um, and we've, to, we've maintained, we've maintained uh, basal, cover, basal area, in other words, plant density. We've maintained our litter cover, and we've increased uh, species diversity. So that our, our species diversity has increased by about 83%, meaning the number of species that we count in, mm-hmm. in across these specific transects has almost doubled relative to when we started. So wow. we're really enhancing it. It's mostly, it's, it's some grasses, but it's mostly, it's mostly forbs that are coming in, um, which are really valuable from a wildlife perspective, from a sage grouse and a pronghorn and so perspective. So, um, plus we, our, our plants themselves, we have our live canopy cover, which, you know, live canopy is basically leaves that grew this year uh-huh. versus um, older decadent material that's carryover from previous yep. years. Um, so our live canopy cover as a percentage of the total cover has significantly Im- increased versus like older standing kind of dead, dead cover, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. So, so for people who aren't all that familiar with the with the grazing can you explain why you're able to run more cow the the techniques you guys Mm -hmm. use that allow you to run more animals than the average rate there because i think for most people who are listening who don't know anything about this they'd say well how how can you do double or 50 percent more how does that work why doesn't everybody just do that well the the, there's two there's two ways the the main way you, you can you can get it done just right off the bat because typically these ranches as i said are understocked um, the reason they're understocked is because they typically manage their livestock at very low density, um, meaning that in a given pasture, <coughs> cattle are spread out super thin, and as a result of that, they tend to 
you know, and, and, there, and the water itself is not, is not distributed very well. The water points where the cattle actually come and drink, whether it's a reservoir or, or develop pipelines and water troughs. Um, so under low stock density, um, there'll be a handful of cattle at each water point in the middle of the day getting a drink. And they'll, and they'll go maybe a half a mile away from that water point over the course of grazing and the rest of the day. But in that country, you have all kinds of area that's, you know, a half a mile to three miles from water mm-hmm. that the cattle simply don't go to under a, a, um, a low-density grazing situation. If they're just turned out, given their choice, they're not going to go there. No, they, graze in, they, they, they tend to come back and overgraze the areas that are close to water and overgrazing they come back and they, as those plants try to regrow during the growing season, they're coming back and regrazing them as they're trying to grow back. That's what overgrazing is. Um, and then the stuff that they don't get grazed tends to get um, what we call it overrested, or you, you get this accumulation of above ground biomass that is repulsive to the animal because after it's been there for a year plus, it loses most of its digestible protein and energy. And if you have a, those grass plants tend to just sit there, that old material just tends to sit there. And for an animal to go in and get its head into there and, and, and get a bite of the current season's growth, it has to take a bunch of the old previous year's growth. And the, if, the, if, it, if the animal's never moving and has the same exposure to the same area all the time, it's far more likely to go back and, and continues to continuously graze that regrowth on the areas that it's been grazing. Sure. Because that's where all the protein and energy is, is that fresh regrowth versus going and grazing the kind of undergrazed, overrested grasses. And then the overrested grasses will basically strangle themselves yeah it depends on the species but a lot of them just end up just dying it depends on the species and kind of the environment but it, it, eventually those bunch grasses especially tend to die in their center and you just pull them out of the ground if they don't get periodically defoliated your book has great photos of that for people again buy the book <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and so the a lot of the a lot of that country up there is more uh it's dominated by western wheatgrass which is rhizominous instead of bunch grass mm-hmm. And uh, or there's quite a bit of uh, buffalo grass and blue stem up there as well, which kind of sod forming. So it's less prone to dying as a result of no grazing, but they still get this bulk of um, above ground biomass that's that's not attractive to the grazing animal or any wildlife or anything. So it's just a it's kind of a stagnant, decadent landscape. So those two patterns, overgrazing and undergrazing, tend to happen on any any specific patch of ground. And so what we do is is we aggregate animals up into bigger herds. Um, condense them down onto much smaller areas. Um, and so they are, if they're going to fill their bellies, they have to walk more than a half a mile from water. And so, and they, and they tend to do it willingly once they kind of understand the program. And the first time through a property or the first year through a property, when you're dealing with all this kind of overrested rank feed, um, it's, it's somewhat stressful to get them to make the impact on that and get through it and get it grazed and get all those, all that organic matter cycling. But once you kind of get through it the first time, you don't necessarily have to do it all the first time you go through, too. You know, the first two or three times you graze that, you kind of whittle away at that old decadent stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so so just by virtue of how the animals are managed within the landscape at these higher densities, higher stock densities, um, and moving on to fresh ground more frequently, we effectively are able to access the entire ranch as opposed to just half mile from each water point. And so we... We call it our, our investors. I remember the first time we explained that then, they're like, oh, it's kind of like we're just filling up the apartment building. <laughs> <laughs> definitely real estate guys, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like you like build an elevator, you know. Yeah. It's like there's, you apart, buy an apartment building. It's got a busted elevator. So you fix the elevator yeah, and, and, and then access the, you know, the top five floors. And, yeah. uh, 
And so that's effectively what we're doing with the cattle. But then, but then, so that's like the immediate way that you can increase stocking rate is just by using the whole ranch. And then through time, though, by managing those grasses the right way, by eliminating this undergrazing and overgrazing, um, these two simultaneous patterns that go on, the undergraze or the overgrazed plants are able to come back and express themselves because you're giving them a chance to fully recover between grazing events. So you're there for a few days and then you might not come back to that spot for a whole year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or you graze it for a few days in the growing season and then maybe, uh, and leave good residual in the growing season and come back and graze it once in the winter. Um, the point is though, that those plants aren't continuously grazed as they're trying to grow back the whole growing season. And so those overgrazed plants dramatically increase their vigor as a result of getting managed the right way. And then the undergrazed plants, which are kind of stifled by this above ground biomass that is shading the growth points of the grass and um, resulting in them being a lot less vigorous than they could be if they got periodically defoliated, those also increase in their vigor and productivity when they get properly grazed. So you're increasing the productivity of the landscape because the plants are managed right Mm -hmm. and you're distributing the livestock into the whole ranch. enabling you to access all this country that used to not be accessed. And so a result of that through time that that we found in Montana is just that we can super consistently, even in tough years, manage through time on average 50% higher stocking rates. And that has massive implications to the profitability of these Mm -hmm. places because most of those ranches up there are kind of break-even operations under the conventional stocking rates. Um, but you can increase stocking rate by 50% without increasing your expense overhead structure at all. Mm-hmm. And so every animal that you add above that conventional stocking rate level, all, fall, all the income from that animal all falls at the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that 50, on, on those places, that 50% results in those places being solidly profitable year That's to year. That's huge. Yeah, it's, it's, it makes ranching viable up there. But it's it's totally a result. It's totally dependent upon being able to get out there and act and, and manage the grazing this way. That's the key to it. Yeah. Well, and I think for people who don't who don't fully understand this, I mean, I think your your advantage, your competitive advantage here, and the reason you're able to do this, it really comes down to you're willing to work harder than anybody else, both from an intellectual standpoint and an actual physical out there, because you got to move these cows and you. You know, you, mm-hmm. you got to set up the hot wire, and mm-hmm. it's it's a lot harder than I think what some people think of who of ranching who aren't involved. You just pay, hey, put the cows out, let them let them do their thing. Yeah. But you're, you know, at, during the day you're moving these cows. At night you're reviewing the data. You're planning mm-hmm. the next day's moves. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, do you agree with that? That the advantage, the the competitive advantage you guys have is that you're willing to work harder than than most people. Combined with yeah. your experience, and and when I say work hard, I mean think hard as well yeah exactly and that that's it's really more it's more the intellectual um energy that it takes Mm -hmm. the the planning and the thinking energy than it Mm -hmm. takes more than the actual physical work Mm -hmm. side of it you know ranching though is it's you know it's physically challenging no matter what no matter what yeah no matter what your management approach is but um but yeah you know to 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 run that 50 percent higher 50 to 100 percent higher stocking rate you just you have to really be on top of things and that that's one reason why under conventional management, it doesn't take a, a lot of thinking at that at that level. You're you're gradually degrading your resource base, but you never really run out of feed. Mm-hmm. And and uh, there's a lot of hard work associated with it. And you, you know, there's a lot of country you got to cover. And, and under conventional management, where you got cattle scattered out all over the place, you have a whole lot of country you got to cover just to check your cattle or to sure. check your water. And so, you know, with what we do, it's, it's actually, in some ways, less labor-intensive. It's, mm-hmm. it's very intensive labor, but it's focused on right where the cattle 
happen very, to be very, very focused. Yeah, it's yeah. very focused because you know if you just got one or two big herds instead of ten or twelve little scatter herds all over the place, that means you got one or two spots you need to go check a day instead of twelve places and you go yep. check a day. Only one place you got to go put out mineral, and one place you got to go you know make sure the fence is up at any given time, and so so your your effort is just more focused and and uh, but you have to be it, it requires a, a, a level of observation that is unusual in our industry level of observation and, and data collection and planning and, and, and incorporating all that, all that data from previous years and experience into gradually refining your plans going forward and being willing to sit down at a desk and, and just nut it all out and figure it out. That's one component of it. But then the actual execution of it is, is even, it takes, it takes guys that, that really can think in the abstract both kind of spatially and temporally at any given point in time, because when you're really kind of on the edge there, using your grass really efficiently, um, if you're if you have a great big if you have over a thousand pairs in a pasture and they're planned there for a, a four day grazing period, say, and they really should have been moved after day three instead of day four, and you mess up on that, don't go and don't make that happen. That fourth day of being seriously shorted on feed. Has, if that kind of mistake is repeated over the course of the season, the implications to animal performance, to calf weights and conception rates and cow condition going into the winter, it all compounds and it's a, you can have a wreck. And we did have a lot of wrecks in the early days mm-hmm. with holistic management when Savory first came here in the 80s. Um, uh, just a, too much optimism and, and in terms of how much we could increase stocking rate and then a lack of observation during the execution phase. Yeah. And, uh, and so that kind of gave a lot of what we do kind of a, a black mark in many ways. Um, uh, but it wasn't a fault of the process. It was a fault of the uh, just the ways in which these it was executed. And so we've learned a lot all that. And the people that have stuck with it um, are, are now kind of that's the component of the ranching community that's really thriving. Um, so that's the thing is you just got to pay attention and, and be willing to you know, and if you do have to, if you're realizing, man, I'm having to move my cattle at, you know, 70, 80 percent of my grazing, planned grazing period, that's happening over and over. That means, shoot, I'm overstocked this year. Um, how am I going to adjust so that um, so that I get to the end of the season with as many cattle as possible and build the winter cover that I want to take into the winter to, to winter my base capital stock or whatever the consideration is, yeah. how that how that is uh, evolving over the course of the season um, is something that you constantly have to be paying attention to and thinking again, temporally wait in the future. Like, what is this adjustment that I am or am not making today? How does, what's the impact on that, on my ability to get through the, the next 12 months? And so that's the hard part that people struggle with. Yeah. And, uh, well, and I, I don't know how else you could learn that other than through just raw experience. I guess as more and more people are doing this and you guys are compiling the data and you can share it, that helps. But mm-hmm. when you're on the cutting edge, you're, you're kind of breaking new ground there and it would, it's the experience yeah. that, that matters more than anything. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and that, and that, that's, that's what happened in those early years with Savory's clients here in the, in the eighties, you know, a lot of whom he'd go and he'd, he'd kind of was a consultant to them and then they kind of left them to their own devices and, and uh, and they'd have a you know have a, a wreck and blame Allen or blame holistic management, sure. but a lot of them didn't though. A lot of them stuck with it and, and realized, man, there's some great things happening here. There's enough good things that are motivating me that motivate me to stick with it, and I just got to figure this out. And and uh, so yeah, it's 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 a school of hard knocks. But now there's getting to be a kind of a second generation of 
holistic management people, they grow up doing this. And so it's just kind of ingrained in them. And, and that's the way they, it's the way they grow up thinking that a ranch needs to be managed. And so, so that's, that's super valuable. So what specific tools do you use to help with all this data management and forecasting? I know you guys are, your Google maps are amazing. Um, and I'm sure you spend a ton of time on Microsoft mm-hmm. Excel, but are there any other, other tools you use to help you with all this? Um, well, we have we have the grazing planning process that that Alan developed that really has has stayed pretty much the same through time, and uh, it was actually um, developed from a, uh, a military training protocol that he um, used when he was a, a, an officer in oh, the, wow. in the Rhodesian military in the in the Rhodesian Civil War. Yeah, actually, it, that was an offshoot of, of the original. Um, British military planning aid memoir it's called uh-huh. <laughs> so he developed he kind of de- evolved that or developed and kind of adapted that to um, kind of the chaos of planning the grazing over the course of a season he, he equates it to you know planning for a battle going into battle where you, you would never go into a battle without planning uh-huh. um, even though the way the battle battle is going to evolve is completely definitely not going to work out the way yeah, that you conceive yeah. it same way going into a into a planning the grazing of thousands of animals across this big chaotic landscape and you know that you're prone to the vagaries of weather year to year um and all kinds of other things fires that can happen and and uh, uh you know who knows what can happen to impact the way that you need to tweak your plan so that you actually get to the end of the season having hopefully met most of your goals and objectives uh, ecologically and, and, and animal performance wise. And so it's super complex. And so he developed a SAID memoir for grazing planning that, again, is built on this British military planning exercise that attempts to take into account all this great level of complexity. And each step, it's like a 15 step process. Each step builds on the previous step. So by the end of it, you kind of got all this stuff, you know, that's wrapped into the plan. And, 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 uh, and it gives you peace of mind that, yeah, I've thought through the whole thing. Uh, thought through plant needs, thought through animal needs, thought through wildlife needs, thought through logistics of moving needs, thought thought through uh, where I need to be when I'm branding, thought through where I need to be when I put the bulls out, thought you know, where, I, where I need to be when, when we're shipping. And so all that stuff goes into the plan. And uh, so that's the main thing we use. But we've kind of adapted that into, a, into a, indeed an Excel spreadsheet where uh-huh. we keep all track of it all now because we have – Especially in New Zealand, we, it's just such a big, complex operation there with, with four or five different classes of livestock and hill country and, yep. and mountain country and flats. It's all kind of integrated together. So we needed a more robust way to, to quickly do um, inner scenarios, grazing okay. planning scenarios, kind of more, more matching stock uh, feed demand and feed supply scenarios constantly. And, and so, so we use Excel a lot for that. And we're, we've tried to use some kind of commercially available grazing planning software now. But we just haven't found one yet that that meets our needs. Sure. Um, Again, I think when you're on the cutting edge, you know they're they're selling to the middle of the bell curve there. Right. And so while I, I imagine there's a lot of use for that, like I had, we were talking about Christine Sue. I had on yeah. your pasture map, mm-hmm. and for people that are trying to learn this or get in the early, you know, figure it out, I would think that would be a great option. But yeah, you're the, I mean, really, it's not exaggeration. To say you're you're one of the people that invented this, or or, <sighs> or on the cutting edge. And so it's um, yeah. There's not going to be any mainstream software for you, or they'd only sell one <laughs> one piece of it. I know. I mean, we we work with a group. We've been trying to work with a group in Australia that that really is similar to us. They're far down the road, but even 
and 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 for the most part, it, it it it's helpful. But there's some components of it that just aren't there yet. And none of us are coders or programmers, and so mm-hmm. um, we don't have the capacity to really build the stuff from scratch. So yeah. it's we're getting to the point where we need to hire somebody that can that can take what our needs really are and yeah. and and figure it out. Um, it's not just for the planning side of it. it it's really where, where our stuff really falls down is on the whole, all the recording side of it. Sure. And gathering all that data and then feeding that data into a and in kind of a user friendly uh, interface that can mm-hmm. en- enable us to cons- consistently plan better going forward. So capturing all the, all of our actual cattle moves uh, or livestock moves and aggregating that data again in a way that we can easily reference. Yeah. And doing it like in real time you're out there with you know we, we imagine being out there with your with your phone and you move a herd of animals and you and you plug the move into your into your phone and when you get either if you got a satellite connection or you get back to your wi-fi it uploads to your program and it updates all the actual moves that have happened and all that data gets you know goes to the all the historical data from that specific pasture and and it all gets all you got to do is enter it on your phone when you're out there making the move instead yeah. of coming back remember to write down coming back enter it in your computer yeah and, and all that so anyways we just need to we need to get more um just kind of refined on that and uh but again the, the planning side on the front end too is needs some work also but but we, yeah we use the google earth we use it's been that's been awesome because a, a, a lot of it a lot of this is you know it's the grazing planning stuff but it's also all the uh the fencing and water uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. planning that we do, we call land planning. And, um, you know, we used to do it with just hard copy topo maps and tracing paper. And, that wasn't and, that long uh, ago, really. No. Ten years ago, no. Google Earth was not No, dead. I mean, when we got started on these plants, uh, we still have all the maps and all the tracing paper. When yeah, we really? did all this when we first got going. But then we don't in New Zealand, though, because time, by the time we got going there and in Florida, Google Earth, we were, we were all very keen Google Earth uh-huh. Pro people by that point. Sure. And so... Man, we realized, holy cow, this is really going to change the, our ability to get in and, and really do this land planning component of what we do far more efficiently and accurately. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we use that a ton. So on Antelope Springs and Cinch Buckle, I mean, we could talk about this for three hours, but you've come in there and you've done your method of grazing. Can you just give kind of a bit of an overview beyond just the stocking on the improvements you've seen in these ranches? I mean, it mm-hmm. can be anything from, if you could talk a little bit about some of the water infrastructure you put mm-hmm. in, I think that's huge. But then even to the biodiversity, because I remember when I was driving around on Cinch Buckle, your ranch manager um, pointed to a spot and he said, you know, when when we got, when we started, when I started on this place, there was no willows down there. It was just barren. And now over the course of my time here, that whole area is, is grown in with willows. It's just a lot more healthy, more birds. Mm-hmm. And that's just one small, tiny corner of the ranch. So could you just give yeah. a few examples like that of the improvement in these places? Yeah, so those kinds of um, kind of very obvious improvements, again, they kind of hap- they happen on kind of little little areas where, yeah, the willows come back or you get some cottonwood germination um, or, or you, you know, you get a, a, pair, a patch of bare ground that you fed a hay bale on that, that uh, got a lot of fertility kind of added into it and created all these microcytes for germination so suddenly covers back up with grass again. So there's lots of those obvious things. But, uh, but the, the, by far the, 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 biggest, the biggest really takeaway in terms of what we've been able to do there has been the fact that we've, we've, we've run 50% more cattle, talking about Montana now, so we've created ecologic or economically viable operations there in the process of 
maintaining our ground cover. Um, and we've, so in terms of the aggregate aggregation between litter and plant basal area, so aggregate soil cover has, has maintained itself. And the quality of that soil cover, though, has improved, though, because the plants themselves are more vigorous, mm-hmm. and we don't have this overburden of decadent material now. What's, what's covering the soil surface is, in, is in, it's contacting the soil surface as opposed to this kind of standing dead biomass. Mm-hmm. So the litter is down now touching the soil surface where it can decay back into the topsoil more readily. Um, and then the plants, the standing biomass is all one or two-year-old uh, feed mm-hmm. or current year's feed or from last year. So you don't have five-year-old stuff standing there that's gray and oxidizing and nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the, the, um, the aggregate kind of uh, health of the whole landscape is better because of that periodic um, and well-managed infusion of disturbance as a result of that migrating grazing herbivore mimicking the, pattern, the grazing patterns of the bison. Um, so those are, the, you know, that's the main, the main improvements that we've seen. Um, uh, but as you say, there's lots of little site-specific, site-specific places, though, where things really jump out at you. And at times of year, you see these fence line contrasts with your neighbors that are great. And uh, um, the thing that I think is so cool about that is it's, you know, it's obviously great for the environment, great for the, the, the grasses and for the animals and the birds, but even if you have no interest in any of that, it just make it makes them more profitable. If you're only right. looking at like the apartment building complex, right. it's much more profitable now, which right. is just it seems to be rare in in, in operations like this that you can kind of have it both ways. Um, exactly, you know, that's it's like it's it's an example of the human species um, generating profit in the process of building back ecological capital as opposed to liquidating ecological or natural capital. It's like the first time we've done that yeah. um, since, since we've been around, sure. uh, really. I mean, we used to list, you know, exist in relative balance and harmony with our environment to a degree. But really, since humans started b- starting fires, mm-hmm. um, you know, Homo erectus started fi- starting fires. Yeah. Um, you know, as Alan Savory likes to say, no, no fire lit by a human being is a natural fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's right. the, the globe did not expect a clever primate to figure out how to light a fire. Sure. And since we started doing that, uh, you know, not very, in some ways, probably intelligently and, and, uh, and deliberately and carefully. Um, but a lot of time, especially in the early days, when we first, when you first figure out a new tool, you know, humans are very prone to abuse it, overdo it, overdo it, exactly. Overdo it every time. And, uh, and so, so that's, that's the heartening thing about this is that indeed we are profitable in the process of not liquidating, but regenerating ecological capital. And you asked about the improvements I mentioned a little bit ago, um, you know, the, we've maintained our plant density and we've, and with healthier plants, um, we've maintained our litter cover and in terms of more prostrate litter, that's more readily incorporated in the topsoil, but we've also increased our species diversity out there. So, so you, usually there's dormant seed sources in all this, in all this country of all these native plants, um, that without periodic disturbance, it happens in the right way, um, yeah, you, you tend to not in, uh, enhance or, or support the germination of those of those seeds, and so with the right disturbance, with a hoof planting a seed, and and then the, and the right litter cover on the ground that can slow the water down and cause the water to infiltrate the topsoil, and then the animal moving on as that seed germinates and comes on, mm-hmm. you create the conditions for these dormant seeds to germinate. Sure. And so, and so that's a, a really cool thing. Um, 
to see all those, you know, the plants are all, there are remnant plants there and, rim, and these dormant seed sources. But when you create the conditions, they all start to germinate and you get this influx of, of new, of, you know, new biodiversity there. And so that's been the, again, we've increased on average across all of our transects on Cinch Buckle and Antelope Springs, our species diversity by 83% since year one. It's been higher than that in some good years, but then the last two years we've been kind of drought years. We've kind of come back to eighty three. So it's like we have we count almost double the number of species of plants, and you know, and and we're just talking about not not like going out and just like really trying to find them all over the place. What is growing? Can we find one plant? You know, in the in the hundred meter area of this transect? Yeah. No, we're talking about in the in the like one meter um, diameter loops that we put down on the transect that go down in the same exact spot every year there's five loops that you put down across the ground and you read all these ecological indicators within that loop one of which is how many species of plants can we count in there that's amazing and so so those loops we're counting almost double the number of plants in those loops now Uh the number of species in those loops now than we were when we got started and so and again those those are mostly they're forbs coming in that that are critical sage grouse and pronghorn and and you know, mule deer habitat. Yeah. All those animals are, are more forb and forb eaters or browsers as they are grazers. You know, so the the the, the cattle are filling that grazing niche that would have been filled by bison and elk out there. Sure. And um, and and they're because of how we're uh, uh, managing them now, they're enhancing all this forb component that's coming in. So. So yeah, it's it's, it's good, man. It's great to be involved in that in a, in, in that kind of work where you know that you know. At the end of the day, this is sustainable indefinitely because the thing that underpins it all, which is this ecological capital, is mm-hmm. maintaining or improving. And um, and it can finance itself. Yeah, and it, it's a perpetual and it's, motion it all pays for itself. Yeah. Well, that's and that that brings me to one of the things that I I really found attractive about these properties when we started talking about um, working together on it is that obviously a rancher could buy it. But I think what's even neater, uh, a neater idea is that an investor who has literally no experience in ranching could come in and buy this land and uh, as a great place to park cash and keep you guys on as the managers of mm-hmm. the property. And then they've got this place where they've got cash invested. They've got, they're getting an annual return from the, the uh, cattle operation and they're getting potential appreciation as the land uh, appreciates. Mm-hmm. And you just really don't find investment in the ranch world. It's hard to find things like that. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about, maybe talk about the, the model you guys have used um, of, of running, doing custom grazing mm-hmm. versus, versus actually owning the cows. Yeah. And then if you, if someone did come in and buy and wanted to own cows, how would it be different? Yeah. No, we should say that, uh, yeah, I mentioned how the South Dakota places we've sold. Mm-hmm. Um, the same guys that bought the South Dakota places have bought the bought the Montana places, and and they've they've had a great run in, in appreciation. And so our owners there have elected to sell those now and going to allocate that capital into other assets. Yep. But and so yeah, we're in the spot now where we would really like we meaning grasslands would really like to continue the, our continuity of our management there mm-hmm. uh, with new owners. But yeah, and so the. The model that we run up there is is uh, our 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 own our the landowners do not own the cattle, so our the cattle are owned by other area ranchers up there, big scaled up ranchers that have more cattle than they have land. So they need to work with guys like us that take in their cattle, 
on a full care basis mm-hmm. and and uh, they show up for branding and shipping typically and that's it over the course of the year they'll come a couple other times just to catch up with you and see how things are doing but yep. but they don't have to do anything day to day the the cattle owners don't grasslands we we hire the crews the on-site crews um i i get up there and and uh and facilitate the financial planning the budget annual budgeting and all the annual grazing planning with with the crews there we have an office in bozeman that does all the accounting for all of them so the ranch managers don't need to worry about paying bills and bouncing the checkbook every month (laughs) our guy in bozeman does that and um he's a great great guy he is great he's been so helpful to me (laughs) yeah will yeah he's 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 awesome and uh so, so we kind of uh, offer that kind of full service to the investor, the land investor. Um, again, when we got into these in 2010, 11, 12, um, the cattle price cycle was on its up upswing, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we kept thinking we were peaked out. Yeah. <laughs> we should have bought cows yeah. in, in 2010. But, you know, things continued to go up till 14, 15 when everything tipped over and everything crashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, it would have been good if we would have bought cows at that point and then, and then sold yeah. when things topped out. But we didn't because we felt like we were buying at the top of the market and we sure. didn't want to do that. And so anyway, so we elected to custom graze, which is far less volatile in terms of income generation than, than owning cattle. Um, but it doesn't have the upside in the good years as you do when you're if you own the cattle actually own the cattle so our, our investors elected only own the land and not own cattle um, but that's another reason why we got going on northern great plains though is because there's big ranches up there ranchers that have thousands and thousands of cattle that so there's a big demand for custom grazing both cows sure. and calves on a year-round basis as well as yearlings in the summer and so so we built the whole business model around you know what essentially what can we sell the grass for mm-hmm. on a full care basis and grasslands will pro- provide the full care basis and, or the full care and uh and uh and the investor doesn't need to be worried about investing at the top of the cattle market and and losing his pants when the cattle market crashes sure um just get this good steady custom grazing income and so so our returns up there have our, our profitability there is totally from just selling our grass like that yeah. and uh and not and not actually via cattle ownership if we again, if we would have owned cattle, we would have been more profitable over the course of the time that we've been there. Um, and if we were going to continue, if we go continue there, and if we get a potential buyer that comes in that does want to own cattle, now's the perfect time to buy in the sure. cattle business because everything's bottomed out now, and it's likely to stay low through at least 2019. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole key to making uh, profit in, or to really. <laughs> I wouldn't say making a windfall by any means, but but the key to um, kind of temporary profitability in the cattle market is getting, if you want to be in cow-calf, is getting in when the cow prices are low and then riding up that curve and selling just before they top out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which isn't that easy to do, obviously. Yeah. I think, uh, who was it, um, one of the Rockefellers said, uh, he was asked, what, what, uh, what's the key to your success? He said, I always sold too soon. Yeah. <laughs> So that's, that's right. That's yeah, good, though. It makes sense. You don't want to time it perfectly. Well, the thing is, you know, you see people in my line of work buying these very expensive ranches as yeah. just a safe place to put money. Right. But the reality is, you know, you go to like Eagle County and buy a ranch, and it's ten thousand bucks an acre, mm-hmm. and you're not going, you're never going to really make money on that kind of deal. And, right. and for the most part, some of these big trophy ranches, hunting ranches, where there's really no income of any kind. They're losing money every year, but it's worth it to these investors to lose money 
to have this safe place for cash right. that's going to appreciate. Yeah. And so what what we're doing here in Montana is you get that safe place to put cash, but you also get an annual return. Yeah, and, or at least uh, you're making enough money that, that you don't have to subsidize it with outside money, and you're making enough money to to uh, to invest back into the property in the form of you know fencing mm-hmm. and water and, and keep your equipment new, you know, and uh, so you, you you don't you don't have this uh, deterioration of infrastructure which tends to happen on ranches long term too that are yep. marginally viable. You tend to have all this deferred maintenance that when you buy a ranch you you buy all this deferred maintenance sure. if it's a traditionally managed ranch. So the point is that there's a yeah there's enough profitability in it when managed this way um, that yeah the owner the landowner doesn't have to subsidize it with outside income. And um, there's enough profit generated either to generate to, to distribute back to the owner or to continue to make investments in the property without when, having to bring outside capital into it. When you think about what your work has done on these places, as far if you could somehow put all the different factors onto a chart into one you know line, it's almost as if it when you first got them in the 2011 2012, it was kind of steady rising a little bit, but it, you know, but. This, because this work compounds on itself year over year, it's almost like it's taking a real hard turn upwards. And so somebody who could come in and buy it now, they would be getting a lot of the, the benefit. They would be getting all the benefits of the hard work that you guys have been doing for six, seven, eight years mm-hmm. and and be able to jump on as a momentum is, is really taking off. Yeah. I mean, and, and you think about it's, you know, 83% more species on the place i mean it's that's just amazing yeah and plus we've got we know how to manage these places now we got them dialed in and 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 so you know we made some mistakes in the early years and being overstocked in a couple of tough drought years yep. and and you know we a few other things that are i won't go into all the details but we, we hard, made knocks. hard knocks that we have gone through already plus as you say we've made you know most of the infrastructure investments that need to happen there especially especially the water um the uh, pipeline and and water trough development cell centers we call them and for people who um, want to see that, go to the maps. I'll have links, and you can see the water pipelines they have on these places. It's mm-hmm. it's unbelievable. So yeah, that's all done. They're ready to really hum now, you know. And yeah. uh, and uh, and if we you know if we got into this into them with a new owner that wanted to also own the cattle, um, as 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 the cattle market starts to rebound, hopefully starting in 2020 or so. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a good six, seven, eight years ahead of us of, of, of really good returns on these places um, via both running 50% higher stocking rates, but also with via owning the cattle out there as well. Yeah, they're, they're special places. And another thing we didn't even mention is that the, the excellent relationship that you guys have built with the government entities up there, BLM and the state, mm-hmm. who you lease land from, and they know how hard you guys work and they know you're taking care of the place. And so that's something that just could not be replicated. That relationship you guys have built with those yeah. people and that, that has uh, big implications on, on the, the, how the place yeah. is operated. Especially those out at the cinch buckle, which has a, that's a 39,000 acre ranch and only about eight and a half thousand of it is deeded. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's about a 12, 12 or 12 and a half thousand acre BLM permit. And then the balance is Montana state land. And so our, our BLM permit out there is is a it's a it's 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 kind of governed under a lot of management plan and that, that we helped kind of rewrite when we got there that gave us a lot more flexibility in terms of how we interacted with that how our livestock interacted with that part of the ranch and though yeah those guys in the Miles City office come out and meet with Nolan our manager out there and and they have a great relationship with us and have a lot of confidence that that we're taking care of the asset out there and and uh, so that that's a 
that's always kind of a wild card with a new owner coming in and new management and, yeah. and the, you know, the agency personnel that you have to deal with. It's a whole new, it's a whole new relationship that needs to get, yeah. uh, you know, that needs to evolve there that can have some, uh, rocky spots, but that's a, a, a kind of a vagary or com- that of this, that a new owner wouldn't have to deal with if they kept, kept us on yeah. anyway. Yeah. It's, they're very, very special places. Yeah. I've, I've been doing this for a while and I've seen places all everywhere, but these places, I mean, they're, they're very unique. Um, so I appreciate you letting us be involved. <laughs> um, so we could keep talking for another hour, but I'm getting hungry. So <laughs> <laughs> how long have we been going now? Uh, like an hour. Have we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there are two other types of questions I want to ask real quick. Okay. Um, one, the, the first set is, so a lot of people, I know a lot of people that listen to this are in the ranching world in some way. A lot of young people who are, who are kind of working their way up, gaining mm-hmm. experience like you did. Mm-hmm. If you could offer some advice to those people, or no, here's a better question. If, when you're hiring people to work for you, what do you look for? Is it, is it, I mean, obviously they need some sort of experience, but beyond the, the, the actual experience on the ground working on ranches, what kind of personality traits are you looking for in people? Yeah, well, you know, the, the fundamental most important thing is that they're really into horses and cattle, but also really into grass and mm-hmm. really into trying to do the kind of things that we do that have an appreciation for managing grass the right way and, and, and aren't. I, I say this sometimes that if, if a guy shows up and you, and you take him out horseback to kind of see what he's made of, and the first thing he does is get on his horse and starts to spin his horse in circles mm-hmm. to try to show off what a good horseman he is, he, you know that he's not the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> <That's good. laughs> but if he's like obsessed by by how vigorous that western wheatgrass plant looks, that's a great. Sign. If you have to say, "Hey, get on the horse," <laughs> exactly. The Come on, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just you know, they tend to be really. The guys that work for us tend to be really, you know, they're, they're, they're cowboys and they love this stuff and they mm-hmm. love horses and they love cattle and they, and they love the whole ranching culture. And, but they have this curiosity about, about rangeland ecology and, and doing things the right way out there. They're genuinely interested in it. Yep. And they're and typically they're humble, curious guys mm-hmm. and, um, and, and realize that the whole, all of it is made possible by maintaining the integrity of those ecological process, processes out there. And, uh, you know, there's, we're lucky that in the U.S. We, we're kind of connected into our holistic management community, which is, you know, it's not huge, but there's a lot of us across the U.S. now. And so we kind of, you know, we get together at the Quivira Coalition conferences and Stockman yep. Grass Farmer stuff and, and, uh, and the Savory Institute conferences. And so we kind of have this tribe of people um, that we've kind of drawn from as we've needed to, to staff these ranches. And so... So that's been it's been in the U.S. relatively easy to staff these ranches with the with the right profile of people. Yeah, and uh, it's been way tougher in New Zealand though. Yeah, I bet so. Where the where we don't have that that network, there's a somewhat of a network, but not not as abundant as it is here. Mm-hmm. And um and a lot of the kind of the perspective that we bring to how to manage grass conflicts with the well, it conflicts with the U.S. too, but it really conflicts with the kind of the conventional New Zealander way of how they think grass needs to be managed. Interesting. And, um, yeah, I, I call New Zealand uh, grass-based agricultural and industrial pastoralism. <laughs> Just super high input. Uh-huh. Um, in many ways, ecologically destructive. It all looks green, looks great, but at the end of the day, the inputs that it takes to keep that where it is 
uh, and the, the kind of the vulnerability that it has to to uh, both market and weather fluctuations. Mm-hmm. It's just not very uh, not a resilient approach. Anyways, but but uh, for they call us the American Jokers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for us to come in and try to superimpose what we think needs to happen there sure. has, has caused some. It's been tough, but we're making definitely making progress. Um, so, anyways, that's that's kind of yeah. Are there you any? Know, specific books for people who are trying to get their heads around the grasses that, that you would recommend? Um, let's see. There's, there's, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at, at my shelf. bookshelf over there. There's, there's, a, yeah, there's, that, see that book right there? How not to grow, how to not grow broke ranching. Where is it? It's that. Oh yeah, yeah, I see it. I see it. Oh, that's a good, I've never seen that. Yeah, How to Not Grow Broke Ranching by Walt Davis. This, this guy's an old-timer from Oklahoma who got into the holistic management world in the 80s uh-huh. and um, been through the School of Hard Knocks. But it's it's a great synopsis of a bunch of his lessons oh, told cool. in a really down-to-earth way. Um, so this is a great book. Um, my book's okay. It, yeah, for, your book's For guys good. that get, in, get into it, it's, um, you know, obviously the... the Allen's holistic management textbook. When I when I found that in 1990, summer of 1990, I just inhaled the thing you twice. Told, yeah, you, yeah, I think you told that story in the uh, in the on the first episode, weren't you in the bookstore in Gunnison? Yeah, in Gunnison. Right? Yeah, where I just happened across that book, and yeah, and, and uh, but that book doesn't really um, resonate with some people. Uh-huh. But for me, for whatever reason, it did. I just couldn't get enough of it, and uh, and so you know a lot of people will be really that's that's the current iteration right there that book on the that holistic management book right there and uh so that's the newest version just came out last year um so that's a good one there's there's uh greg judy's book i think i mentioned in the first podcast um uh custom grazing on leased land Uh so that's that's great for guys that want to get or people that want to get into this initially because at the end of the day you don't need to own cows or land to be a rancher yeah that's what i did for years in western colorado at least I leased my family's little place, but then leased ranches around us uh-huh. and uh, and then ran other people's cattle in the summer. So I was a full-time rancher from kind of April to November mm-hmm. uh, and uh, without owning a cow and without owning an acre myself that I did for 18 years. So if you wow. want to be in ranch, you don't have to have a whole pile of capital, but you have to understand this stuff and, and you have to be able to kind of pitch yourself like those ranches that we leased adjacent to my family's place, effectively we would lease them for free because I went and pitched that with properly managed livestock, I was going to be able to enhance that ranch from an elk hunting perspective. I was going to make, I was going to, I was going to condition the forage to the point that elk were going to be far more likely to want to be on that ranch in the fall. Yep. And that's why those guys own that ranch. Wow. I was to hunt elk in the fall. So I kind of found that value and, and explained to them how I could manage their country to enhance it as elk habitat. And, but I said, but, you know, I'm, I'm going way above and beyond what a typical lessee would do. And so that has value to it, to you. So effectively, I would like to lease your ranch for free. And if, what we do, we'd pay them a grazing fee, and then they'd pay it back to us in the form of a management fee. Well, and, uh, between that and raising all that money for all these ranches all over the world and then convincing your wife to marry you when she hadn't spent any time, you're a good salesman. <laughs> yeah, I have never thought of myself as a good salesman, Ed, but maybe I am. <laughs> you are, Ed. It's proof. Um, all right, a few more, few more quick questions. Um, we, we went through some of these last time, but I, I've got a few different variations. We already talked a lot about books, but what is what was the best book you read you've read in the last year? 
Well, that Cattle Kingdom book was great. I thought it was You're, really good. And, uh, but I'll tell you, I think my favorite book over the past year, I'm actually almost finished with right now. It's uh, American Serengeti by Dan Flores. So good. Oh, my God. That's like a synopsis of all the stuff that I've been so interested in well, for it, so long. Uh, you cover a lot of that in, in your book. You know, that was a, the, the first time I was ever introduced to any of those ideas was your book. Hmm. And so, I, yeah, I thought All that the, book was the great. The Pleistocene megafauna side of it. I mean, you know, Dan Flores is far more educated in, in, in those realms than I am. And so reading, and he's an incredible writer. And so yes. just reading him piece together all that, or read it, how he pieces all that together is just fascinating. And um, yeah, and just, ah, it's just great. So I think that's my favorite book over the past year. That's in my top, in my top three or four, I would say. Maybe it might be the top. I think about it constantly. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's mandatory reading if you live out here Yeah, to no, understand it that totally stuff. Totally, it is, yeah. Like the most basic thing in there, you know, about horses and how horses were here mm-hmm. long ago and then they disappeared about 8,000 years ago and nobody says horses are native. Yeah. I talked to, I asked Dan about that on the podcast and I said, you know, why, and he said, it's, you know, in his opinion, a lot of it's because horses are so politicized now because of the wild Mustangs and all that. But yeah. that's just a basic fact yeah. that I thought I knew that was completely wrong. <laughs> It's yeah. just crazy. Yeah, and, and and the book shed a lot of light on how all that kind of the horse component of the of the plains mm-hmm. in that in that bison era, you know, the end of the Native American bison hunting culture, and how integral the horse. I mean, we all know the horse was integral to that, but but thinking about realizing the population of horses, wild horses, mm-hmm. feral horses that had that had populated these the southern plains, especially mm-hmm. um, that weren't. You know, they weren't horses that were owned or captured or being used by the Indians. They were they'd gone wild out sure, there. Sure, sure. And the and the and the horse trade that started with those crazy adventures that came out oh, when yeah. it was all still in Spain. Yeah, <laughs> aggregating up these horse herds and driving them back to Kentucky. It's, it's crazy. Like, it's like, are you serious? Guys? I need to reread it because that and it's another thing I like about it is it's not long. It's not no, super no, long. No. It's, you get everything you need and. Uh, and it hits on, and it's one of these books I think that will direct you to want to read different books. Yeah, you know, you, exactly. you learn something about the wolf, and you're like, "Well, I want to go off on that tangent and learn yeah. a lot more." Right. Um, that's my favorite kind of book, one that just gets you kind of like yeah. frustrated, like I need to learn more. <laughs> right. Um, no, no, that's good. What is your favorite book of all time? If you had to pick one, one single book. Hmm. I think the book that I, I think the book I think about most. And that had a deep impact on me. I'd read it, let's see, it would have been like mid-90s, 20 years ago, 20-plus years ago, was uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yep. I, you know, I've got that, and I have not read it, but several of the most impressive people I know have said that same thing about huh. the book. I need to read it. I don't know why I haven't. No, I mean, it's, it's just an incredible synopsis of kind of how the world came to be the way it is mm-hmm. right now. And it was... The whole thing was initiated by uh, Jared Diamond, the author. He used to be, he was an ornithologist. In addition mm-hmm. to teaching physiology and anthropology at UCLA, he's also an ornithologist. And he used yeah. to do research in Papua New Guinea. And he was in Papua New Guinea one time, and one of the native Papuans that he was with asked him one day, how come you white Europeans ended up dominating the world and not people from Papua New Guinea? Uh-huh. And that sent Jared Diamond down this quest to answer that question. So just, that's what the whole book's about. Uh-huh. You know, and the great thing is it just blows away any racial yeah. explanation for why things are the way they are. Yeah. It's, it's all, it all has to do with um, just uh, uh, geography, luck, luck of the draw uh-huh. geographically at the end of the day. And, yep. uh, and 
being in an area where there were plants that were domesticatable and animals that were domesticatable and being in latitudes where it was a, uh, possible to expand uh, those kind of technologies latitudinally. It's really much easier to do it latitudinally than it is longitudinally. Okay. So he just ties that all together in, in a way that's just absolutely fascinating. And it talks all about, you know, not, not just Europe and New Guinea, although it goes into a lot of detail about that but all asia and america is also get all wrapped into it cool well that's well, it's, it's great man and that's a book that's a book i think that every college freshman should have to read question. too yeah that's it <laughs> that's the one okay. i think there should be a, a course a freshman course not just read the book but a whole course around that book yeah. that every that every person in the world should have to take because it's it just it's just excellent all right i'll get on it I've got my list is coming out. I got to write it this week, and so I got a fresh. I read that book twice. Out. Second time, I, really? the second time I read it, I like underlined half. Did of you it. really? Yeah, it's it's thick too. It's like eight hundred pages, six hundred pages. Yeah, but it's good, it's easy to get through. Okay, yeah. well that's that's my next one. Um, so I've started asking this question since you and I talked, but um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh goodness. You know, I I would say this is this is pretty this isn't anything groundbreaking, yeah. Ed. <laughs> but I, I think I think about my dad and my granddad all, every day. Uh-huh. And my dad passed away two and a half years ago, um, but he and my granddad had a major influence on me. But m- my dad grew up on the ranch. My granddad was a rancher in Western Colorado. My dad was a uh, became a he was a good football player. He played football here at CU, and then he became a football coach, high school football coach, and yeah. athletic director. And so I grew up around ranching and football. You know, both of which are physically demanding. And and so there was this constant. Uh, you got to be tough, kind of not not in a macho, I'm so tough way, yeah. but just you just got to suck it up and get through that. It hurts right now, but you got to get through it. Mm-hmm. Just got to be tough. And, you know, we'd get bucked off or get hurt when you're out fencing, you know, smash your finger or, or you know, something, get bucked off the four-wheeler and scrape yourself up yeah, yeah. or whatever. You're always getting hurt when you're on the ranch. You're always getting, put, getting hurt playing football, and you just got to push through it and be tough. And and it's not just physical toughness. It's also the mental toughness and the discipline that my dad instilled in me. So I just think about that all the time. So yeah. when I'm faced with hardship and something I got to get through, you just say, well, my dad do, my dad would say, got to be tough and get through this Mm -hmm. so i think about that all the time and the other thing my dad enforced in us deeply was if you commit to something you don't quit you you see it through Mm -hmm. and um i remember i i I was a horrible baseball player as a little kid and i and i the first baseball team i went out for i made the team but i could not hit the damn ball i was a horrible batter (laughs) and i was just mortified how bad i was at baseball and i wanted to quit my dad said no way you're quitting you're just going to see the see through the season and so and so that was a good early lesson, and and uh, and so I just, you know, the corollary to that is, is if you, if you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So eventually, you know, you know, you don't quit if you're making progress. Don't give up if you can see that it's gonna sure. gonna work. And even if you can't see it's gonna work, you know, just stick with it. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's a time at which you know it does make sense to quit something at some point. But usually, though, we tend to give up. We meaning humans uh-huh. uh, have a, a tendency not to not to stick with it as diligently as we as we probably should yeah to get it. I mean that and so that's, that's with all this stuff you know with with your your business and our shared hobby of running these silly long races I mean if if it was easy everybody'd do it and it wouldn't be yeah. special 
So right. it, it's going to be hard. Exactly. And yeah. you got to expect that. And that's that's the whole yep. reason you're doing it. I mean, it's not the reason you're doing it, but it's an indication that you're doing something worth doing. At least that's what I think. No, I think so too. You know, this this all this ranching stuff we do, it is it is hard to execute and pull it off in the way that I've described here. So it's not it's not easy by any means. And that's I think the big reason why it hasn't caught on more broadly mm-hmm. is just because it, you got to be tough and you can't quit. It's hard. It's hard to do. And and. Uh, but if you can push through it and, and actually make it happen, you have a, a leg up relative to really the rest of the industry and, um, and really have the opportunity to thrive and, and, and do good things. My, my granddad always, the other thing that he used to always emphasize to me is you do what you say, do what you say you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You follow through with what you said you're going to do. And so I think about that every day too. You know, you have so many obligations, so many things that you kind of commit to. It may makes you makes you careful about what you actually commit to doing, yeah, yeah. Um, and being willing to say no. But if you decide you're going to do something, you, you you do it. And I remember my. I'm just going to tell a quick story. Oh, I'll yeah. finish this yeah, up. Yeah. One time, I I, I I used to raise rabbits in California. Uh-huh. That was like my livestock enterprise when I lived in California, <laughs> and I summered with my granddad in Colorado yeah. ranching. You know, but that was. And so I wanted to buy and buy an oats. I used to feed oats to my rabbits in addition to these alfalfa pellets. Uh-huh. <laughs> And, but oats in Southern California were ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And so oats in Western Colorado were not. And so I told my granddad, I need to buy some oats to take back to California with me. So we went down to this farm not too far from where he le- uh-huh. lived that he knew these guys had an oat crop and they were probably all stacked up in this ancient barn. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, we'll go over there and see what we, those guys will sell us 100 pounds of oats for. So we go over there. We find the guy. He doesn't have a sack to put him in. And, uh, and so my grand and I go driving around trying to find a, a like a burlap bag sure. to put these oats in. And it was taking us forever. You know, the oats are going to cost like three bucks. And, uh, and I said, I said, granddad, man, why, let's just, let's just go to the feed store and buy the oats. It's cost us five bucks instead of three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> he says, Oh no, Jimmy, we told him we were going to, we were going to buy these oats from him and we're going to find a bag. We're going to go back and buy these oats from him. We made a deal. We got to stick to it. So that that never left me, yeah. um, and uh, and so I think about that every time I am, like, gosh, should I, should I be lazy here and, and get out of this, or do I do what I said I was going to yeah. do? Yeah. And so, anyway, I think about that all the time too. That's one of the best pieces of advice. I, got. I think that's great advice, and I think that's a, a good way to wrap it up. Thanks for doing this again. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, 
please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.